Welcome to Curveballified. On today's podcast, we have the pleasure of having Taro Koitinen. Taro got his degree in biochemistry, mathematics, and virology from the University of Helsinki. At the beginning of his career, he worked as a technology specialist and research associate for mobile telecom products. In today's podcast, we will learn how he was able to become a great leader and establish his position as a senior analyst at Alphon Investment Management. Thank you so much for coming on today, Taro, uh, and taking the time out of your day. We like to start off each podcast by talking a little bit about your background and how that has shaped to where you are currently in your career. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you uh, start off by telling us a little bit about your background and what ultimately led you to this part of your career? Well, I made a huge career leap when I was about 30. So I, the first 10 years of my career, I spent studying biochemistry and working as a research scientist, trying to get my PhD done at the University of Helsinki. And then when I was about 30, I realized that I'm not going to be a good research scientist. This is just not for me. I'm not happy doing the work. The field is just not a good fit for me personally. And at the same time, Nokia had exploded to become number one mobile handset company in the world. And Nokia was what Finland was known for. It was the only game in town. And I kind of realized that I've made the wrong career choice. And I have, you know, I have the choice of continuing doing something that I don't really enjoy and where I'm not going to be successful. I would jump to financial industry, telecom research, and that's what I ended up doing. Was it scary for you at 30 years old to completely switch careers and make that jump? It's terrifying. You know, you, you look back and you think about losing a decade. Because what I learned about neurobiology or program cell death, it wasn't applicable at all in my uh, future career. So it's really hard to let go. But I looked around, I saw a lot of people who were miserable in what they were doing. And I thought that it's better to cut loose now. It's not going to be easier at 35. You know what I mean? And I feel like it's really important in life to accept that the sunk cost fallacy is poisonous. Just because you spent 10 years on something, it doesn't make it valuable. And sometimes you have to just let go and move on. Yeah. I was in a similar situation. Obviously, I didn't spend a decade. I'm, I, I don't look that great for my age uh, <laughs> that I would have been able to make a transition like that. Uh, but I majored in civil engineering because I thought I wanted to work in the construction industry. And then I realized that that's not what I want to do. Uh, but instead of completely jumping ship and quitting on that engineering degree, I ended up, I'm still going to pursue my engineering degree, but I'm using some aspects in that engineering degree in a different way. So obviously 100% of my degree isn't going to be transferable, but there's still going to be a couple things that work. Was there anything from your previous uh, life and career that you were able to transfer as well? Well, uh... I had finally realized at age 30 the importance of networking because I saw that the people who actually got associate professorship positions and they got promotions, they were people who networked hard. So I kind of saw in the academic life that the quality of the work you do isn't necessarily going to translate into career success. So networking is hugely important. And I learned the importance of weak 
connections, that if you maintain connections to people who are in different lines of work and in different industries entirely, that's going to be immensely valuable 10 or 20 years down the line. You don't know when, but as you move through different jobs and industries, it's vitally important to hold on to people. Hold on to people you liked and appreciated and respected. Even if it's a small touch once a year or whatever, don't let go of those relationships. So no matter how tenuous they are, you, you're going to need them 25 years down the line. Yeah. Um, networking is one of the things that has opened up a lot of doors for me. I'm relatively young and a lot of the opportunities that I have, even having this podcast, for me to get guests, it's all networking. And you ask, you have one person on your podcast, they may know somebody else that may be a good fit and so forth and so forth. And then you're able to get more podcast guests. So to me, networking plays a huge role because I'm not in the position where I'm able to see this crazy career and experience, but I'm able to talk to other people about their experience. So I'm gaining a lot because of my networking. You mentioned that networking, you've seen the effect of it in your day-to-day life with people getting promotions just based on their networking skills. How has it played in your life? Huge role. I mean, I got my job at New York at a major bank in 2003 simply because I had been a columnist for this website, gotostreet.com which used to be a big deal back in 99, 2000. It was founded by this guy called James Kramer, who was kind of like the face of the tech bubble of 2000. And whenever I got reader letters, emails, I answered them, like in a detailed, like focused kind of way. And I know that most of the people who wrote for the website, when they got emails from people, they never bothered responding or they thought that, oh, that's just some loser who's emailing me. But the thing is, you never know who is who. So it turned out that one of my readers actually was a major analyst at this bank, Alliance Capital, and he ended up getting me hired there in 2003. So I think that responding to people who reach out to you is really important. Even if you don't think they're useful, even if you don't know who they are, take a couple of minutes, be respectful, try to give them something that they need. I think that's really important. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you uh, answering my uh, text when I texted you. And now we're able to have this great podcast. So it just shows the power of networking that you should never be scared to reach out. A lot of people have like the superstition that like, oh, if I reach out to this person, they may feel like I'm bothering them. But my whole mindset is like, if I reach out to a person and they don't answer, then they're just busy or they don't care. So nothing bad is going to happen. At least you tried. You can't say that I didn't try then. Here's the thing. I saw that same thing when I started out because I didn't know anything about the mobile phone, the phone industry. So I started emailing people, asking questions, asking them advice. And a lot of people around me, when they saw what I was doing, they were like, Tero, what the fuck are you doing? You can't just email some vice president in a company. You don't know them. And I was like, yes, I can. Only 10% of them will answer, only 20%. But it costs you nothing. It takes one minute. Just do it. And if you send 20 emails to 20 people you really want to talk to and two of them answer, that's a win. And if all of them decline to answer, just take it and move on. Amen to that. I definitely agree with that. A lot of my friends, they think that I'm crazy because all day I'm sending out emails trying to talk to people, understand their stories. And the people that do answer... Those are the people you want to talk to at the end of the day, the ones that respect your hustle, because when they see the work that you're putting in 
and they see the confidence that you have talking to them and the fact that you actually did knowledge before you reached out to them. We're not talking about like just reaching out to a random person. You don't know anything about what you do. You have to do your research before you reach out to the person. Yeah. And when you're talking to them, you have to actually understand what you're talking about. So that whole narrative of like you reached out to them, you did research on them. Now you're having a conversation with them. You, they're going to see how much effort you put into that conversation with them. And who knows, they might be able to help you in the future. So that's what I've always been doing. And it's been able to help me throughout my whole career. And here's the thing, you want to know people who do that. You want to know people who sometimes answer emails or texts from random people, because those are good people. Those are people who take time out of their busy lives to help other people. And those are the only people worth knowing, right? So it's, it's kind of a screening process. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you were working for the telecom industry. And obviously, that's a huge jump going from medicine or anything chemistry related to straight to the telecom. And you stayed there for about 10 years. What brought your interest into the telecom industry? Well, it was the o- Nokia was the only exciting thing to happen in Finland in like 100 years, basically. So I started reading about Nokia in the early 90s when they had like two or three percent of the mobile phone market share in the world. And everybody thought that was really impressive, like a Finnish company on 2.5 percent of the market share. And then they, by 97, they could put 27% of the global market share. And then they went to 40%. So it was a massive success story. And I knew that I wouldn't be hired by Nokia because I didn't have any engineering background. But I could be hired by banks who do research in Nokia. Because here's a shocker. Banks have no... They hire people who have like almost no qualifications. So if you kind of become an expert on something, you can get hired. You don't need to have a degree to get a decent job at a bank. Yeah, I really like how you said that, where it's like you you can't get it hired in one industry, so you find your way to get into that industry. So my whole story is like, I'm an engineer. Most investment bankers aren't engineers. They're mostly finance majors. So what did I do? At first, I like made excuses for myself. Oh, I'm not getting internships. Oh, I'm not getting interviewed. But at some point, it's like, how long are you going to feel bad for yourself? You need to get up and do something, right? So that's what I started doing. I started talking to investment bankers. I started talking to all these different types of people and hearing their stories. After you're seeing the efforts that other people are doing to get these jobs, you start seeing that simply applying for the job through LinkedIn is not enough. You got to do your research, reach out to the hiring manager. It all goes back to networking, that whole thing. And for example, right, like I realized I want to work in the investment industry, right? So I couldn't go right away to the banks. So now I'm working corporate and developing my research and building my resume there. And honestly, I really love it in corporate because in corporate, there's so many different things. In one company, you could literally be working as an investment banker. You could be doing lobbying. You could be doing engineering. You could literally do whatever you want when you go to such a big company. So putting yourself in a small box right away may not be the best idea. And at first, I didn't realize that. So then the minute I went broader, I started having more success and I started doing more research. And it's just that's the way that life works. For some people, it does turn out that like they could do the bare minimum and they get the job, but most people aren't that lucky. So it just shows the, how much work you have to put in actually to get the job. That's right. Yeah. And I think one thing that's really interesting about your career is that you're always like above the trends and you're, you're paying attention to the times. Like even though you make the scary decisions jumping from sometimes from industry to industry, going from like the medical field and the science field to the telecom field, you made the same exact jump to the VR gaming and media industry right when it was hot. 
how did you make that switch and how did you know that it was time for you to make that switch? Well, 2010 was a disastrous year for Nokia and for Finland because their handset unit completely collapsed. iPhone had been around for two years and they just devastated Nokia's handset unit, which had seemed invincible just three years earlier. So I knew that I had to move on. And actually, at the same time, Finland saw this boom of mobile application success because Robio rolled out Angry Birds and they got like 100 million downloads. And then Supercell rolled out Class of Clans and uh, uh, Heyday. And they started making a billion dollars a year with only 15 employees. Wow. So that's when I started thinking that, okay, the mobile handset market is dead for Europe. It's been knocked out, you know, by, by Apple. But the software market, actually iPhone is going to feed explosive growth of the mobile software market. So I approached a bunch of app companies and started helping them with their U.S. sort of partnership work, brand partnerships, and, and media work. Because, because of Nokia, I knew people in places like Wall Street Journal and New York Times and so forth. So I was able to help application companies to start talking to like big league journalists and get some media exposure in North America. Uh, one thing that I, I, we forgot to touch on, but that I want to talk about is how are you able to like throughout your whole career, you do these like crazy jumps and just like kind of, it seems like effortless that you're not scared to take these risks. You left a complete, a country that you were born and raised in and you went completely across the whole Atlantic ocean and you're here in New York city. How are you able to, first of all, tell yourself I could do this. Those decisions were driven by panic because once I finally got an offer from wall street, I was 33. And I realized, I was looking at myself in the bathroom mirror and realized that this is the last time. I'm 33. I'm never going to get another Wall Street offer. And that made it so easy. And a bunch of my friends at the Finnish Bank said that, are you fucking crazy? You're not going to last for two years. Wall Street is a whole different game. You're way too old. And I was like, yeah, right. If I fail, I'm going to come back and you can laugh at me in a coffee room. I don't care. I'm going to give it a shot. And... Obviously, I was too old because when you're an associate and you go to Wall Street, you're supposed to be like 25, I was 33. I didn't have the Stanford or Yale or Exeter educational background. So it wasn't a great fit, but you know what? I just fought for it and it was a blast, partly because I didn't take it completely seriously. I never thought I would have a Wall Street career. So I wasn't sweating over whether I'm going to become a huge success. Just staying and having a job in New York was a, it was a huge thrill for me. Well, that, that's very inspirational. I mean, I personally for myself, I put myself under a lot of stress and you're talking about how you're able to separate yourself from the stress by setting the bar at a reasonable expectation. And I think that's really important. One of the things that... I had a bunch of friends, but they thought that if they don't become multimillionaires, they're failures. Easy because most people on Wall Street do not become multimillionaires. A typical salary is 150,000. You know what I mean? There are people who make five million a year, but that's a vanishingly small minority. So if you can live with the fact that you may top out at 150, I think it's a much healthier, stress free life, you know, for you. Yeah. And I think that was really interesting about how you mentioned that you spoke to yourself in the mirror. Uh, I read a lot about other people because I think that. 
by seeing how other people were able to go through tough situations. It helps you uh, become a better person. So I was focusing a lot on David Goggins, the person that man is like just on another level of tough. And he was talking about how the reason he was able to do all these crazy endurance challenges is because he was able to look at himself in the mirror and tell him the truth of what he saw, not what he wanted to see, not what he will become, but exactly what was in front of him. And the fact that you mentioned that, it just shows about how interesting it is that people from different parts of the world also have like this mindset because you start to see like the way that it is in America and you may think, oh, maybe across the ocean it's different, but it's exactly the same way how people think where it's like people always want to tell themselves, make themselves feel sorry for themselves. And then they try to like make up for it. But then the people that are actually like the knuckle draggers, the one that actually want to accomplish something without feeling bad and regretting it in the future. Those are the types of people that are like you that are like, I don't care if I fail, at least I'm going to try. If I fail, I fail. I could get back, but at least I tried. Here's the thing. A lot of people are so focused on short-term money. How am I going to do in my job next month, next two months, maybe next winter, that they don't stop to really take stock. Like, take a look at the mirror. What do you see? Are you happy? Where are you now? Where do you think you're going to be in five years? And if you don't take these moments when you like fully assess your situation and acknowledge your failures, you're going to end up just kind of sliding on that one track, whether it's right for you or not. For sure, for sure. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about how you were able to get into the gaming, media, and VR world. Obviously, there are definitely more transferable skills from the telecom industry than making that jump from the medical to the telecom. So what were some skills you were able to bring on into this role and something that you could add to the team? Well, media connections are really important. I... When I was working at these brokerage houses in New York, I always took every phone call from like CNN or Financial Times or whatever. And a lot of the analysts don't do that. They want to focus on clients. They want to focus on their work. They see media as a hassle. What's the point? And I said yes every single time. And I usually got called when a big name said no. You know what I mean? Like Friday morning at 4 a.m. Bloomberg News studio or... Easter Friday, 8 p.m. CNBC. So when everybody else said no, they knew that, well, Beno is going to say yes every time. And I did it. I went to the studio. I did the hit, no matter what. And then certain journalists came to think of me as like, okay, that's the fallback guy. We can all learn from him. He's going to pick up even if it's Sunday night at 10 p.m. And I always did, always. And once you have certain amount of media connections, they help you. They carry you over when you need to cross industry boundaries, because whatever company it is, usually they need media. Usually they need to know how to connect with certain reporters. Did you ever see that as a, like a bad apple in a way, because they saw you as a last resort, not as like a first option? No, I think I was being realistic because the biggest Nokia analysts in Wall Street, they, they are big. They are household names. They make two to $5 million a year. Of course, I'm going to be the third choice or the fourth choice, and it's fine. It's, it's fine. I mean, you don't need to lie to yourself to make it bigger than you are. Being a choice to go to Bloomberg TV on Friday night at 9 p.m. is a blessing. It's a privilege. It was a blast. My parents back in Finland were happy when somebody told them at the shop that, oh, then I was in the, in the cable TV again. <laughs> you know, just take it for what it is. Wow. 
I mean, that, that was a, that's a very interesting way of looking at it and definitely the right way. I feel like one of the issues that I do have personally is the fact that I set the bar unreasonably high for myself. And then when I don't accomplish it, I get upset with myself. And in recent time, what I've been able to do, very thankful for my girlfriend that she's been able to help calm me down and set the bar more realistically, is the fact that now I set more realistic goals and I actually end up being happier and I'm able, and I'm able to enjoy life a lot more. And being able to celebrate the small things. Because before I was like, if something small happens, we don't need to celebrate that. Only when something massive happens, then you celebrate. But the problem is when you start celebrating only massive things, you end up not celebrating often. And you it's you're not trying, I'm not saying that you should pat yourself back as pat yourself on the back because you got out of bed and didn't roll around for 10 minutes. But like if you got if you have a project at work and you get the project done, you should be happy. You shouldn't expect to get your project done, your teammates' project done, and the whole team's project done just for you to be happy. So setting the bar reasonably for yourself and then saying like, okay, I did that, pat yourself on the back, that's okay. But every single time patting yourself on the back is not what I'm trying to advocate for. Yeah, and also, I mean, if somebody from Daily Beast contacts you, wants you to go out, you do it, take it, be happy about it. Maybe that reporter is going to be in New York Times in five years. You don't know. And even if he isn't, it's a move towards the biggest goals you have. And, you know, that's always worth something. Yeah. You mentioned about how your media connections have helped you throughout your career. And then you made the jump into mobile apps. Yeah. Completely different animal. Uh, what, what made you super excited about that? You spoke a little bit about Angry Birds. Um, what else made you jump into that mobile app space? And what made you think that you could do it? Well, it's a bit the massive revenue growth. And also the fact that a lot of the successful mobile app development teams in Europe, they don't have any US connections. They may be brilliant in making the application, but if they want to start licensing negotiations like with some movie studio or television you know, property, they don't know how to approach that. So at that point, back in 10, 12, 14, Brand partnerships and media partnerships were hugely important. This Finnish game company created a Walking Dead game and they had an exclusive deal with AMC and so forth. So back then, that was a really sort of important thing. It's not that anymore, but that kind of helped me get a start in the application industry. Yeah. I think that throughout your whole career, you've just been able to leverage your network and kind of find excitement where other people are like, at first they may be scared, but then they get in when it's a little bit too late. And you've been involved with the Web3 space for a while. And now it's like became like such a coveted and big thing. How are you able to like find out about Web3 so much earlier than everybody else? And what do you think the future of it is? Well, it took off Finland, in Finland like three years ago, four years ago, a vast number of AR, VR companies started pop popping up. The good thing about Finland is that a lot of early technology trends take off there before the rest of the world. Mobile phones, mobile games, VR, AR. So that's very useful and that's fascinating to me. But of course, the scary part is that these early companies don't have a lot of revenue. So I, in the beginning, I spent a lot of money a lot of time with companies who were trying to get like $5,000 or $8,000 pilot projects going on with the clients. So it was really small scale three years ago, and now it's kind of really taken off. 
But like you said, often if you want to get into a new industry, you have to get in early when it's not safe and when it can be kind of terrifying. I wanted to ask you, what do you think the future of Web3 is? I think the future of, I guess my special focus is on AR. And I believe that we are on the threshold of explosive growth because when Apple launches the AR glasses and when some of their rivals get more serious about them, like Google and Amazon and Facebook, I think we're going to see really wide adoption. And I think that a lot of brands, a lot of companies will have to have persistent AR presence, which means that when people walk walk up and down the streets, they do want and need to see information about the stores, products, services via the AR glasses. So I think that's going to be the next big transition. And we need that because the handset market now really is dead. I mean, there's been no real advancement in handset technologies for like, what, five, six, seven years. And we need a completely new consumer electronics category to kind of get things going again. I mean, I think that the way society thinks is like Google tried to make Google Glass and that completely failed. So I think that that's something that's holding society back when it comes to AR and VR because of that big fail. Why do you think back then it failed, but in the future it may succeed? I think that we need that first wave of failures. We had it in the mobile phone market where we had a lot of unsuccessful, too expensive products before things took off. And we saw it in the mobile application market. A lot of the early apps and games were really bad. And nobody thought that people can make serious money with mobile games. It was only when Supercell kicked in around 2012 when people realized that, holy shit, people can make 100 million a month on this one like farm simulation where people milk cows and sell milk. So I think that we always need those early failures and God knows we've had the early failures in the VR and in our industries. And I think that right now when most people have written it off completely, now we're on the verge of an actual commercial breakout. Yeah. You mentioned about how you uh, you say that you were able to stay ahead of the competition because you're from Finland and a lot of companies that they do start in Finland for some reason. Why do you think a lot of these companies and ideas start from Finland? Well, first of all, we have a government funding system that gives relatively generous free money for a company. So if you launch a technology company in Finland, you can probably get $100,000, $200,000 from the government. So it sort of enables people to take risks much more easily because there's strong government backing. Like 100 different virtual reality companies have been funded by Business Finland. The entire industry was just given money by the government to see how it goes. And that gives sort of like an early boost for new industries. But another point is that surprisingly enough, Finns are risk takers. They may seem very cautious and, I don't know, stayed. But new technologies like mobile phones, mobile applications, a lot of Finns want to be there first. They want to do the technology without knowledge of future revenues. And oftentimes, American startup people, they chase dollars. They want to do what's already lucrative. Somebody else made a lot of money by launching a delivery system. So now you have 50 of them. Instead of looking at something completely new and unproven, Yeah, I mean, definitely makes sense. When you have the government support, it makes a lot simpler. 
And also to get back to your previous point about Supercell, about how they're going to be developing there. And the minute Supercell starts exploding and everything starts going in the positive direction there, it's going to help a lot with the AR and VR. And not so long ago, Supercell had their 10-year anniversary with one of their biggest and first games, Clash of Clans. I remember back when I was in middle school, Clash of Clans was one of the biggest games and everybody was playing it and the town hall had a max level of eight or nine. Everybody at my school would be asking, oh, what level are you? What level are you? And now with Supercell and mobile games being where they're at, there's all these rumors coming out that there's going to be this new town hall level, which goes up to 15. And Supercell has these yearly Clash of Clans tournaments. What effect do you think that's going to have on the industry and the media? What exactly? The fact that some people might start re-downloading the game after the new update for the town hall. I have to say that the mobile game industry is kind of stagnating for years. Right now, I think there's one game in the US top 20 of most downloaded applications. And eight, seven years ago, there used to be sometimes seven out of top 10 games were games. So the mobile game industry has been kind of, it's getting stuck in a rut. And I think that the most exciting new applications come from different categories. So you have some really interesting new social media apps like Get Real. You have interesting video uh, streaming applications. So I think that we are having a transition area in the application market where consumers are kind of moving away from games to different types of entertainment. Yeah, talking about exciting, and it seems like you're always in the forefront of these new exciting industries. What do you think an upcoming industry that's going to be very exciting in the next coming of years is going to be? Well, I guess I'm really excited now about the drone industry. There's a couple of really fascinating Finland who enable like a one person to operate an entire drone operation. And I think that the use of drones in different ways is going to grow really strongly. And I think it ties into XR industry. Like drones are increasingly used in AR, VR productions. They're part of the whole XR ecosystem. And I don't think people have really thought through what are the real opportunities of using these new generation drones. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I think that drones are something that's very cool. Looking at what's going on in Israel, they have a lot of drone technology there. A lot of like this aerospace, like crazy defense technology. And I think that drone technology is definitely going to be coming up. And drones could be used for multiple things, whether it be in the construction industry to help you plan your building, or even like in the security industry, obviously, as well as in the defense. So there's multiple purposes. And I'm sure there's many other industries that it could be used in that I'm not mentioning. So it definitely does become helpful. It's been kind of funny for me because I've recently started contacting drone units of police departments, which is a completely alien industry for me. But I've started doing it. It's actually interesting and it's challenging because a lot of these people aren't on LinkedIn. They aren't in that whole technology finance ecosystem. It's completely separate, insulated industry. So it's an interesting challenge. How do you talk to them about this? How do you get them to talk to cutting-edge software companies? So I don't know. It's like an adventure. Well, when you figure it out, definitely let us all know, or we'll be able to see you on the news talking about it. That's for sure. (laughs) I also wanted to talk to you about, so it sounds like you have like a lot of fun industries that you're a part of. 
And one of the industries which I'm really interested about, the fact that you're interested in, is the Broadway industry and technology. Can you talk about how you got into mentoring and working with Broadway Accelerator Technologies? Well, Broadway is a really old-fashioned place. A lot of the marketing, for example, is dominated by subway and newspaper. So it's an old-fashioned industry, but it's also an industry that wants to experiment with new technologies. They have particular interest in augmented reality and virtual reality. So Schubert Third Chain started this mentoring program like before the pandemic, where they invited technology companies from all over the world every year. And, you know, the winner would get the technology implemented by some Broadway production. And I thought it was just extremely fascinating. I think that when a large, well-established industry, when an industry like that makes a technology leap and starts figuring out how to implement AR and VR, that's the coolest part of like a technology adaption cycle because the options are limitless and sort of like it's up to this handful of people to decide which way they want to go and who they want to partner with. So I don't know, it's a blast. Sounds very interesting. And talking about some more of your interest, working a lot, you have to have some interest outside of work so that you don't burn out and definitely something outside of work. What are some of your hobbies that you're able to go to when you're not working? Well, I live one hour from New York, but I'm actually in the middle of a national park, in the middle of Connecticut mountains and forests. So just going out on long hikes, relatively demanding hikes, like you know, up the mountain and back, I think that's incredibly important. I come from Finland where a lot of people are in touch with the forest on a daily basis. They go running in the forest, they go foraging food, picking berries or mushrooms or whatever. So when I moved to New York, it was important for me to kind of maintain a touch with the forest. I know that a lot of Americans go to gym a lot, but being in the middle of machines, it's not the optimal way to de-stress. You go climb a mountain, you get a lot of exercise, but you also get these benefits of being surrounded by trees and nature. And there's a big psychological impact from that. And especially during the pandemic, it was really important part of my life and I have three teenagers and I try to drag at least some of them with me every time I go into the forest it's ongoing battle but I think that if you learn that early in your life it's going to help you balance your balance your lifestyle yeah I mean I was recently watching a Formula One documentary and in the Formula One documentary of they show Valtteri Bottas, who's a Finnish a Formula One race car driver and they show about like all the stuff that he does when he's back home with the saunas and like the ice baths and coming from an Eastern European background where my parents coming from Ukraine, going to the banyas and the ice tubs is something that we've always done. So it's definitely a European way of relaxing where it's Americans, they like to relax and do nothing. And I think Europeans like to more like do something with their free time. Yeah, I think Thank so. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to today's podcast. We had a great conversation. The viewers definitely will learn the importance of networking through this episode. Uh, If you have any uh, notes or something you want to say to our audience, feel free to say it now. Thank you again. My Twitter handle is Tero Tero Tero. Uh, If you guys have anything to ask or want to give me some feedback, just go to Twitter, DM me. I probably will answer. (laughs) Thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it.
I really appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much. We are finished recording it over there. We had a great time uh, conversing. I had no clue about like the, I knew the importance of networking, but it sounds like the fact that you were able to leverage your media connections is definitely a huge touch. And that's something that I'm trying to do with myself where it's like, when you put yourself as like a personal brand and people start to see like David Iofi is a personal brand. And if we hire him, not only do we get him for his engineering, but we get him for his Twitter, him for his blog, whatever it may be. It's a huge leverage that the company does have. So I appreciate you showing the emphasis and telling me that what I'm doing is in the right path. And, and here's the thing. Twitter is a place where every reporter is or like, you know, a day. So I know a lot of other people have migrated to TikTok or LinkedIn or you know Instagram or whatever, but all of the reporters really are on Twitter. So I think it's really important to follow like a hundred of them, hundred and fifty, and have kind of like a moderate interaction. Like maybe respond to them like once a week or two weeks. Like not be a fucking psycho, but kind of like do a little bit of pinging to see who's ultimately gonna engage, right? For sure, for sure. Thank you again so much for coming on. And if there's anything that we could possibly ever help you with, feel free to reach out at any time, whether, um, I mean, I don't know what you may need our help with. It sounds like you have everything in the line. Do you ever have like company CEOs in this podcast? Yeah, we have, we have a lot of CEOs, like startup CEOs. Yes. Oh, I mean, are you, are you talking about like, we have a lot of CEOs, but are you looking for like, uh, of big companies? Cause we mainly deal with like pre-seed, seed, I could try to get in contact with some like bigger company CEOs. Um, if I mean is that I know a couple of Finnish startup CEOs who are right now looking for funding or they have just gotten funding. And I think some of them are fascinating people. And I think that they should rehearse their podcast kind of skills. So if you're interested, I could refer a couple of them to you. You could have a phone call with them and see if they might be a fit for a guest. Perfect. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, we we definitely love to have them on. Um, and we do have like our first season was mainly all startups. This mm-hmm. season is mainly all v- is going to be VCs and startups. Uh, we recorded a couple. So if they're interested, uh, feel free to send them my way. We'll definitely con- chat with them. Every single like I'm just like you, every single person that emails me, even those like sponsored ads that are like, fake people i still respond to them and the reason the minute i understand that they're fake then i just like get out of that situation but i always respond just to make sure that to see maybe that there's something interesting there that's the way to go okay so i'm gonna do that i'm gonna talk to a couple of them i'm gonna do an intro maybe in a week or two and let's see if you find some of them interesting yeah perfect thank you so much and have a great evening thank you have a great evening levy i'm so, i'm getting so good at this yeah you messed up on the clash though like it sounded weird the whole point was trying to say is like with the 40-year anniversary do you think they're trying to like sort of bring people back into their game sort of because the whole point with that was how i mean I, really didn't, I didn't like fuck up my question i said like 40-year anniversary with the game clash i i kind of said it wait let me call you on so they came with a new game that's why the whole point was uh, with gaming, people tend to leave and come back. It was new updates and new, like, uh, big parties, like the 40-year anniversary. You think people sort of come back to these games or no? Hey, Levy, that was Levy, the thing. Can you pick up Can you pick up on my phone? Because I kind of got a pee, and I want to talk to you while I do this. I'm ending the Zoom call.